0: Hey, Salt City. How's it going? You guys doing all right? Yeah? All right. Good. I'm, I'm Jordan. I'm the college pastor here. Um, and recently, a few weeks ago, I had one of the most high-roller experiences of my life. And that was odd for me. And I know you're thinking, that's weird, Jordan, because you strike me as pretty fancy, pretty high-rolling. Um, <laughs> thanks. Somebody over there really thought that was funny. I appreciate that. Uh, so this is what happened. I'm sitting on my couch on a Sunday afternoon, just me had a thing for work where they were going to go to U.S. Bank for some like what they were calling a watch party. I didn't really know exactly what it was, but her company owns like a box at U.S. Bank Stadium. It was a away game for the Vikings, but they were going to have some party where they were going to watch the game together, whatever. So somebody couldn't come last second, and she turns to me and goes, hey, do you want to go? And I was like, eh, like, I don't know. This couch is nice, but yeah, okay, I'll come along. I had no idea what I was getting into. So We drive up to U.S. Bank. I pull up directly in front of the stadium, and there are valet parkers there. I've never parked valet in my life. So I get out of my car, toss my keys to this guy just feeling awesome, and I walk inside, and I think we're going to go up to, like, one of the suites, like at the top of the stadium, but they direct us to this escalator going down, and we go down to field level, and I turn the corner, and we're in, like, the nicest football suite I've ever seen in my life. And the first thing I see is an ice sculpture that is covered in crab legs and jumbo shrimp. And I turned into like a child. I probably should have been more professional, but I, I went for it, I sprinted. So we're eating crab legs, and then I see people start to walk out on the field. I look at Jess and me like, hey, can we go on the field? And she's like, yeah, I think so. Nuh-uh. So I walk out on the field at U.S. Bank. There's dudes there, like, setting it up so you can kick field goals. I kicked a field goal at U.S. Bank and then went in and ate an all-you-can-eat buffet and sat there and watched the Vikings. It was amazing. So, and then when I left, they gave me, like, a $30 stocking cap, handed me my keys back, and I'm like, this is is the life. Um, Here's the deal, though. As, like, awesome as that experience was, I was bored by halftime. Genuinely. Which you might be thinking, okay, dude, that's there's something wrong with you. But you know what that's like, right? You have like this incredible experience. You see something that's amazing and then it becomes familiar. Like do you ever go on vacation, you go to this beautiful place and then you see the people that are living there and they're like not seeing what's around them? Something becomes familiar and there's something about human beings that we have no idea how to be amazed at something that's become normal to us. And and here's what I think is one of the the biggest failures of us as Christians is that we've become bored. We've become bored with who Jesus is and what he means to our life. Like, and this is all the time, but Christmas in particular, like Christmas, we celebrate the incarnation that divinity puts skin on. Like that mystery became knowable, that the source and sustainer of our existence, like the one holding your life together, he came to get us and here's our response, meh, like that's fine. And that's a problem. Not just because your Christmas or your life won't be as sort of meaningful as you would like it to be, which I think that is true, but it's a bigger problem because that's actually offensive to God. So imagine one of my favorite things about officiating weddings is, is, I mean, I like watching the bride come down the aisle, but I love watching the groom, right? Because everybody's watching the bride, but the groom sees her and he just freaks out and loses it and it's the best. But imagine if a groom, as his bride is coming down the aisle, kind of looked at her and just was like, oh, eh, this is fine. It would be like a revolt from the bride side of the family, right? (laughs) Because being bored, being like lack of amazement at something that's amazing is actually dishonoring to that thing. And so today we're, we're reading a passage, Isaiah 9, that for a lot of us might be kind of familiar. It's a passage about the incarnation of Jesus. And here's the goal for today it's not to necessarily learn new information, it's to put on wonder, to relearn how to be amazed. And and I know that even sounds weird because we think of amazement, wonder, or joy, those things as things that just sort of happen to us. But what I I want to claim and what I've seen in the Bible, not just with Christmas, but in general, is that it's actually our responsibility as Christians to put those things on. We're actually commanded to have joy because Jesus is worth it. And so I'm not talking about just sort of an emotional touchy-feely thing. I'm talking about understanding what the incarnation does for you and choosing to engage worshipfully with it. So we'll unpack that a little bit more, but let me read Isaiah 9 for us, and let's worship as we read this. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff... on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Okay, that text is a beautiful, like poetic description of the way things ought to be. So if I just said this statement, hey, the world is not the way that it should be. I highly doubt that anyone in this room would argue with me on that. We intuitively know that something has gone wrong, even if we don't totally know what it is. And this is a picture of the world that we were meant for, the way that things should be. Because it's a description of the kingdom of God. So that whole expression in there, the government shall be on his shoulders, I I think what he's referencing there is just the kingdom of God. And, And a simple way to think about the kingdom of God is the way that things ought to be. And so here's the deal. This text describes what the kingdom of God is like, the way that things should be. And and it just kind of goes in order. So verse 3 talks about joy. Verse 4 talks about freedom. Verse 5 talks about peace. So those are the descriptors of the kingdom of God. It's a place of joy, freedom, and peace. So I want to hit those things quick, and then we'll talk about why a child can bring those aspects of the kingdom of God. So look at verse 3, joy. Joy. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. Jesus came to increase joy. Okay, so he gives two analogies here of, of what increasing joy is like he gives a harvest analogy and a war analogy the harvest and the spoils. Okay, so both of those things is when the work is completed and then you have abundance, right? So what happens at a harvest? There's a, there's a farmer that plants some seeds and he works really hard all year for those seeds to grow. And then you work even harder during the harvest. But then once the harvest is complete, all of the work is over and you just have this pile of food. And so what do you do? You throw a feast. You celebrate. You enjoy abundance, Right, The same thing with the spoils of war. You work really hard to fight this battle, but then once the war is complete and you've won the victory, you get to walk around and you can kind of take whatever from that. You get the spoils of war. So here's the deal. Joy is the choice to celebrate abundance when the work is over. There's a few different ways you could define it, but I think that's how I would define it from this text. The choice to celebrate abundance when the work is over. Okay, so why does Jesus coming to earth, give us access to joy that we didn't have before. Number one, because Jesus finished the work. Jesus finished the work. That's part of why he had to become human, is we had we had a job description as human beings. We were supposed to reflect God's image through the world. There, another way to say that is there was just a certain way that we were supposed to live, and we've universally failed at living that way. We haven't lived up, we haven't done the work that we were supposed to do. And, and that's not just in general, I, th- I think we know that individually. So there's a lot of you in this room that you've spent your life, and in particular your religious life, trying to work so that God would sort of be pleased with you, that he would be impressed with you. You look at sort of your understanding of a job description of a Christian and you, and you put effort into trying to live like that. And then when you don't, you feel guilty about it. You're trying to work. But this is the point of the incarnation is that we couldn't actually achieve that. And so Jesus came and did it for us. He had to become a human being so that he could fulfill our job description that we had failed to fulfill. And so he becomes a human and then he lives out the perfect human life that you and I were supposed to live. So that when he's on the cross and he says, it is finished, he's not just talking about that one momentary event. But he's saying the work of human beings is finished. Because I've done the work for every previous human being, every human being living now and every human being into the future. He's completed the work. And so the fact that Jesus has completed the work, what does that mean for us? It means that we have abundance. So I don't have time to totally get into this, but there's this concept in scripture that we have become co-heirs with Christ. What's an heir? That you, that you inherit what your father had. So here's what it means that you're a co-heir with Christ, that you have access to everything that Jesus earned. His standing in relationship to God, you have that. The the blessings and abundance that God deserves to only pour out on Jesus, he pours out on you. You have access to everything. That's abundance. And so what does that mean? Is that our joy is unshakable. That no matter what's going on in your life, you have access to joy because nothing can rob you of what Jesus offered you. You will always, for the rest of your life, have access to abundance because Jesus worked even when you didn't. And every day you will wake up and you will feel like that's not true. Every single day of your life, you will wake up and you will you will feel it's human nature to think that we have to work to be impressive, to please God. You'll, you'll feel like God is holding out on you that he hasn't actually given you everything that you need, that he's, that he's distant. If you're in that kind of distant time in your faith where it feels like when you're praying, you're talking to a brick wall, you will feel like he's held out on you. But every single day you wake up, you have an option as a Christian to put on joy, to celebrate the fact that you have everything that you could ever need. And that's part of what it means to be a Christian. Okay, next one, freedom, verse four. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. So Jesus came as a liberator. He came to like break chains, which sounds nice in general, but doesn't really land with us, right? Because aren't we already free? Isn't that kind of like we're Americans? That's sort of our thing, freedom, right? Like, what does that mean for us? Well, You know what it's like to be enslaved. You know what it's like to be enslaved to anxiety, where your to do list is constantly in your head. You're living in the future and you can't enjoy the moment because you're nervous about what's going to come. You know what it's like to be enslaved to control, to not have control over your own life, and to panic because you can't manipulate it to become what you want it to be. You know what it's like to be enslaved to sin where you go back to the same thing over and over and over again and you promise yourself and you promise God that you're never going back there again and then you're back there the next week. You know what it's like to be enslaved to meaninglessness. Where where you just go to work and you kind of do the rhythms of life and you don't really understand what it's for, the purpose behind it, how to have any significance, any meaning in that. Okay, why do we get so weird about traditions at Christmas? Like, Drew talked about this a little bit, right? But you guys know what I'm talking about. You've got, like, those family traditions where, like, you want Christmas not to just be Christmas, but you want it to be, like, magic. You know what I mean? Like, and, I, and look, I'm in on this. I'm, I'm a diehard on the traditions. I have a glass specifically for eggnog. Like, the only thing that's touched that glass besides water to clean it is eggnog. There's, there's snowflakes on it, and it makes me feel awesome when I drink eggnog out of it. So, but we have we have these these traditions, these these things that, that we go to, and and we have these kind of grand ideas of what Christmas and what life should be. Why? Because we want to produce meaning. Because we know that there should be something more to life than just sort of the daily grind. We, we want more than what we have. But here's the deal, meaning doesn't primarily come through these sort of amazing experiences that you have, although those are good things. It doesn't primarily come through these amazing experiences that you have, it comes through the people that you live life with. I think that's a general principle, but in particular, what I'm talking about here, you know how you can find meaning in your life? Is when every waking second of your life, you have the king of the universe walking through life with you. That, that when you are sitting in your like little cubicle at work, that Jesus is there too. And that you can have relationship with him. Like that's significant, not because your life is something special or your life is something amazing, but because you have him. You have access to him. You can walk through life with him. And that's what he offered us in the incarnation is he refused to stay distant, but he came down. He got in the mess. He got in the average daily life so that you can find meaning in the kingdom of God. All right, next one, peace. Verse five. For every boot of the trampling warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned As fuel for the fire. Okay, did you catch how beautiful that is? It's kind of like old language. It's kind of hard to catch that. What is it saying? It's saying that everything you need for war will be burned. Why? Because it'll be irrelevant, it'll be useless. Because war and conflict and brokenness will be gone forever. Imagine a world where tanks are useless. Because war doesn't exist. Isn't that that beautiful? Like, don't you want that? Now, I'm not saying that's fully come now. We live in the tension of some of that being here already, and some of that is the not yet. But we look forward in hope to the day where Jesus will resolve every conflict, and he'll bring peace. But there's actually something really weird about this hope that Isaiah is trying to give the people, and it's the timing of this message. Okay, here's what I mean. Here's what's going on roughly the time that Isaiah is, is speaking this message, is that the people of Israel have turned almost entirely away from God, and they're about to be invaded by the Assyrians, this like hostile opposing army that's about to come in and kind of take everything that they love and know. So that's the, the context of, of this message, which that's hard for us to understand, which is actually a really great thing, that most of us haven't known what it's like to be fearful of, inv- of an invasion. Okay, but imagine this. Imagine you walk into church this morning, and we've got news playing on these two TV screens. We've got Fox News over here and CNN over here. We're just staying balanced, okay? And, and so... So you're watching whichever one, or and you're dividing up. Okay, and, and you're watching the news, and it's and it's normal news, and then all of a sudden there's a news flash, and there's a drone flying over downtown Minneapolis, and Minneapolis is burning, and then it zooms in, and there's Russian tanks driving across the Hennepin Bridge, and there's a battalion of Russian troops that have taken over the stone arch bridge and there's infantry coming down 94 towards us okay now imagine that I walked up on this stage after watching that same piece of information and said have hope be joyful life is good this is amazing rejoice you'd be like dude you're insane I'm out of here there's tension there, right between what is happening in the world and the message that's being preached. And this is what Isaiah is trying to say to these people, is that the kingdom of God is more real than anything else in this life, even when it's terrible. That, that even when there's kind of pressing and present danger, that as believers, we still have access to hope. Because even when it feels like it, Jesus has not left us. And he's given us access to something bigger, more lasting than this world. That conflict, you know what, it's going to die away. But Jesus' kingdom is everlasting. It's eternal. It'll go on forever. Here's what that means for us is what, when you're just in the middle of life, like when the cancer comes, when marriage is hard, when you can't seem to get out of sin, Jesus hasn't left. He's still here in his kingdom of peace and grace is more real than the chaos around you. And here's what we do as Christians is we choose to live and to believe and to hope like members of that new kingdom, even when it doesn't feel real. Because we want to display to ourselves and to the world that there's something better coming. I was sitting reading through my newsfeed the other day and it's people freaking out about the idea of us pulling out of Syria and essentially the world's gonna go to chaos and everything's gonna end, right? And and like, I, that's probably an overreaction, but maybe, who knows? And I found myself getting hopeless and getting frustrated. And then I had this moment where I snapped out of it and just went, what is, what is going on? Like, I'm a part of this amazing church that I love. Like, I have a king who has promised me eternity with him. I've got like a, a family and a new baby. And like, like I have so much to have hope and to be thankful for. And, and I just tried to like snap out of it and to put on hope, to put on joy, even when the circumstances around me seemed detrimental. And, and this is what I, I want to point out is Joy and hope are not just a nice byproduct of the Christian life. So I think that this is what we think about. If if you're like a super mature Christian, then maybe you can start to feel joyful. No, No, the fight for joy and hope is central to what it means to follow and obey Jesus. Like it's your job to believe his kingdom more than you believe the bad news of this world. But then this brings up the question is like, if all of the evidence around us seems to go against what Jesus has promised us, how can we believe? How can we trust that he's actually going to make everything right again? Here's why. Because hope came down. Because hope became real. It became tangible. His name was Jesus Christ. He was a baby. Hope entered earth 2,000 years ago so that we could cling to that truth, to that reality. So this is verse 6. This is the the anchor of our hope. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Okay, here's the plan for healing the world. A baby. What? Like, I think Drew talked about this a little bit. Okay, so... I've got to get like a new baby illustration in here, right? Like I just, so I just had my firstborn son a few weeks ago and uh, I got, yeah, introduced to parenthood pretty quick. I had not been around babies before. I changed my first diaper ever in the hospital at 4.30 in the morning, okay? But that wasn't the one that I'm about to talk about, which, okay, I am about to talk about diapers and I promised myself I wouldn't be that parent because, you know, like the parents that talk about like that stuff and then everyone else in the room is like, why are we doing this? But something about parenthood, you just got to go there. It's just now part of your life, okay? So Graham, like, fully introduced me to parenthood a couple days after we got home from the hospital where I, you know, I went upstairs and I got him undressed, changed him, and then got everything back on without him getting mad at me, which was, like, a feat, right? So I'm, like, standing there genuinely, like, proud. You get proud of weird accomplishments when you're a parent. So I'm, like, proud, and then he makes that face, you know what I'm talking about? If you're a parent, that face of like, I'm about to destroy this diaper that you just put on me and ruin your life. And, and, and so he makes that face and then he does. And I'm like, oh, come on, man. And then I try and remind myself that I'm a Christian and that he doesn't mean it. but It felt like he was trying to mess with me, you know? And so I take that diaper off. I get the second diaper. As soon as I get the straps on, the face comes back dude just destroys another one. And now I'm just like, okay, this is getting ridiculous. So I'm not even paying attention. I take it off and while it's open, yeah, you can guess what happened there. I won't get into detail, but yeah, he went for it again. But not only does that happen, but he starts peeing. And I was like reaching for my third diaper and not prepared for this. And apparently this is a thing. If you have a boy, he peed on his face. And so this is just like, So there's just, everything's happening, he pees on his face, and now he's ticked, and he's yelling, and now I'm yelling, I'm like, Jessamy, like I'm calling him for reinforcements because I'm just like shell-shocked, I don't know what's going on. (laughs) So we finally got this whole mess cleaned up, right, got him laid down, and then literally, I, I started thinking about the incarnation. That actually happened. Okay, hear me on this. Jesus likely peed on his face at one point, okay? Now, I really am not trying to say that to, like, be crass or disrespectful towards him. I, I'm saying that because, like, I think that actually, ha- we tend to have this idea about Jesus is, like, he was sort of human, but sort of the way a superhero is human, and he's kind of like the bionic man. No, he was human, and that was, that was the plan of God, like, like the way that God was going to display his glory to the world is a helpless baby. Like God became helpless. He became fragile. He became breakable. Like raw power born into weakness. What is any other powerful ruler going to do with their power? They're going to leverage it to, to give themselves more power and manipulate other people in the process. What does Jesus do with his power? He forfeits it to humble himself. That is ridiculous, and it's full of glory in a weird way that almost nothing else, well, not almost, that nothing else is. Why? Why would God become a helpless baby? Because it was the way to get to you. That is the length that he would go so that you could know him. That's what it took and so he was willing to do it. And here's the, the crazy part about this, is everybody missed him. Like he was the Christmas present that nobody wanted, because people don't want weakness. Right? What did they think the problem was? That the issue was out there. It was in Isaiah's time, it was the Assyrians. In, in Jesus' time, it was the Romans. And what did they think they needed? They needed someone more powerful to them to come and just kind of do away with evil and to sort of lift them up. The issue was, was sort of out there, and we do the same thing. Right? What's the, the problem with the world? It's out there. It's, it's our culture it's the sinners out there it's it's um the the people in my life who are making me mad it's the 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 circumstances and the temptation gk chesterton was a, a a famous author he uh, he lived like like we're thinking like early 1900s era and um there was this question that the, the Times sent out to a bunch of famous authors that asked them to, to write in with their answer. And here's the question. It was really simple. What is wrong with the world? And, and the authors wrote uh, a bunch of essays that they published in the New York Times. And then G.K. Chesterton wrote this. It's the shortest quote I think I'll ever show you. Dear sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. I am. See, the problem with the world is you. It's me. The problem isn't out there. It's in here. That the reason why the kingdom of God hasn't been realized on this earth is because we are in rebellion against it. Because we don't really want it. We want our kingdom, we want our name, we want our fame. We want power. Even if Jesus would lay down His rights and His power, we don't want to lay down ours, and so we live for ourselves. And here's the deal: If God would have came in power alone to destroy evil, then He would have had to destroy you. But he didn't want that. So instead, he came in weakness. The incarnation is God's way of saying, I will never leave you. In your shame, in your doubt, in your sin, in your rebellion, in your pain, I will never leave you. Because I came to be with you and I'll be with you forever by my spirit if you trust me. I will always be with you. If I would leave heaven to come to earth to get you, then I'm not going anywhere. That's what the incarnation says. He says, I'm on your side. Okay, so what do you do with that? (laughs) Like, how do do we respond to love like that? I want you to notice a detail that's really important. Verse 6 it says this, for to us a son is given. It's given. Jesus was given to us as a gift. What's the way that you respond to a gift? We'll, we'll come back to that. I can give you a couple ways not to respond to a gift. Again, Drew's exa- Drew, you stole like half my message, man. It was great. Um, <laughs> Drew's example is, is perfect. One of the ways to not respond to a gift is to be unimpressed. To be, to lack thankfulness. Here's a second way to not respond to a gift, to try and pay the person back, right? So what's the best Christmas present you ever got? Okay, for me, it was a trampoline. I wanted a trampoline so bad, and my dad bought me one one year, and he like, like secretly set it up in our garage, all this stuff, went to a lot of work, and he gave me a trampoline. Now, imagine if my response to that trampoline was this. Dad, I'm I'm so thankful. I'm so grateful. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to work really hard this summer so that I can pay you back. And I never jumped on the trampoline all summer because I was working so much to pay him back. Would that honor him? No. What about like, oh, yeah, thanks. That's fine. Just put it in the backyard. I'm going to play video games. Would that honor him? No. What honors a gift when you just enjoy it? When you, just, when you just use it when, it, when you're thankful for it, right? The, the best way that I could thank my dad for that trampoline was to just jump on it and to have the time of my life. And I did, trust me. So that's what it looks like to be a Christian. It's not all that it looks like, but a big piece of what it looks like to be a Christian is to get creative with new ways to enjoy the fact that you know Jesus, it's, it's to figure out how every facet, every piece of your life can come back to his kingdom and how you can enjoy him through it. Now, what I don't mean by joy, this is a different sermon, but what I don't mean by joy is just sort of glib happiness. I mean something closely connected to hope. That no matter what's going on in my life, Jesus, you're better, you're stronger, I trust you. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna hope in you. I'm gonna place my faith in you. It's just getting creative with ways to do that. Okay, so for me, what this has looked like lately is I'm trying to start uh, every prayer with just thankfulness. And, and I, I notice like uh, some prayerlessness going on in my life and, and that's still there and I hate that. And so I'm trying to um, prayer journal. I'll just like write out my prayers because it helps me focus. And I try and make it a discipline to always thank him before I act him, ask him for something else. And you know what? It's really hard to be unimpressed with God when you think about all the stuff that he's given you. Seriously, if you feel dull in your faith, go list out as many possible things as you can that you have to be thankful for and see if you still feel like that. Maybe you do, but it's hard. Thank him. I've been doing like, uh, I've been trying to do feasts every once in a while. This is maybe a weirder one, but like, the, the Israelites used to do this in the Old Testament where they would just celebrate abundance by literally feasting. So we did like a friend's giving, but I tried to make it into like a, a feast. So I read this like sort of weird prayer poem thing. And like I was like thinking about it and praying about it all day. I like made it this thing because I, I want to introduce the discipline of celebrating good things in my life. Rest. Like just stopping for a second and just... here's my goal in rest, which this is hard for me, this is new for me, but I'm trying to figure it out, is I'm trying to, as often as I can, take at least a day, a week to to primarily rest. And here's my goal in that day, enjoy life as much as possible. And just thank God for that joy that he's given me. So to kind of close this out, let's come back to this U.S. Bank thing. All right? Here's what you have access to in Christ. Is the kingdom of God. Which is like way more high rolling than U.S. Bank. Which, don't hear me wrong on that. I'm not talking about he's going to like give you a bunch of money. Okay, we're, No. But, here's what I mean by that. Is you have access to a life that is unimaginably better. Because you know Jesus. Now a lot of that you're going to find out in the next life. But some of that you can realize now. And, and here's the thing, you have access to something that you don't deserve. The, the only time that I can think of that it's really fun to, to be somewhere where you don't belong is when you're somewhere that you don't deserve to be. Part of the reason why U.S. Bank was so much fun is because I'm just like, what am I doing here? Like, this is not my life. And that's why it was amazing. You have no business being in the kingdom of God. But you're there because Jesus is awesome. That's a really cool thing. But here's the deal. Some of you are like, I may be stretching this too far, but roll with me. Some of you are standing outside of U.S. Bank trying to get in on your own credentials. So you're showing them your ID and saying, yeah, but you don't know who I am. And they're like, yeah, we don't know who you are. You're not coming in, right? And you're doing this with the kingdom of God. You're trying to get in through your own work, through your own name, through your own effort. And they're not going to let you in. Here's how you get into the kingdom of God. You say, Jesus, Jesus. I'm coming in because of his merit. And then some of you are in. You got like the crab legs piled around you. You got everything going on, right? You're in and you're just not impressed. You're just sort of over it. It's time to rejoice. In verse 3, it says the word rejoice. Joy just became a verb. It's something that you do, that you choose Choose to celebrate the abundance of the kingdom of God. Try and make that a lifestyle and a discipline. And here's why we can do that, because there's no more work left to do, because Jesus finished the work. There's no more work left to be done at Christmas. The only thing left to do is to rejoice because our king has come. Let me pray. Jesus, thanks. Thanks for... Finishing the work, thanks that you're better than us at living this human life. Thanks that you didn't stay distant, but you came. Teach us to celebrate that truth. Uh, Teach us to be people who have hope that other people don't have access to, because I think that demonstrates who you are. Um, And so help us to learn, God, what it looks like to believe that your kingdom is real, even when we don't feel like it and to to live differently as a result of that coming. Jesus, thanks for the incarnation. Thanks for coming to get us. Let us worship you the way you deserve to be worshiped this Christmas, because you didn't stay distant, but you came so that we can know you. That's beautiful, and we want to celebrate you. We love you. Amen.